You're listening to a sermon series on Judges, Broken People, Faithful God. To learn more, visit linworthroadchurch.com. We've been going through the book of Judges, and we've seen that it's a dark period of history for the nation of Israel. And today, Christians in America can relate, can't we? We've experienced some stunning changes in the last decade, and there's no question America isn't a moral and spiritual nosedive. If there was ever a time we needed to pray for our nation, it's today. And I so appreciate Rich praying for the families of those who lost loved ones just a moment ago. But in fact, this morning, July 10th, is Pray Together Sunday. And today, churches all across America are uniting in prayer for our nation. And so before we look at our text and judges this morning, I'd like to read a very familiar verse that I think will be read in churches all across the nation today. And would you stand with me as we read God's Word, a very familiar text from 2 Chronicles 7.14. And maybe we could read it together. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Would you pray with me? Father, this is our desire that you would heal our land. Oh, how America needs healing. We're in so many ways a broken nation. Father, I thank you for this promise that we can apply, that any nation can apply that would turn to you And Father, this morning we turn to you. We ask, Lord, that you would stir in the hearts of Americans all across the nation, your people, to pray. Oh, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would reveal areas in our life that that grieve you, sins that we need to turn away from. Lord, idols in our life that we need to get rid of. Father, times when we've been apathetic, when we've forsaken our first love and we've been lukewarm, Lord, stir us. Lord, help us to turn from those things that grieve you and turn to you with a whole heart. Father, make us salt and light. Lord, let the love of Christ shine from us in this dark world that we live in today. Might we be emboldened to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those around us. Father, we ask that you would bring healing to America because only you can do it. You're the only one that can do that. Father, we ask now that you would bless our study in the book of Judges. We ask that you'd speak to us, Lord, in Jesus' name. For your glory, amen. Well, if you would, turn to Judges chapter 11. You'll find it on page 211 if you're using one of the pew Bibles. Judges chapter 11. And we'll look at the text in just a moment. But as we study the book of Judges, we've seen that everything is upside down, much like our culture is today. You know, what was once perceived as good is now perceived as bad. And what was once perceived as bad is now perceived as good. 
You know, it's funny how you see certain slang expressions evolve over the years, isn't it? Some of us who are older, we remember expressions such as, well, gee whiz, or gee willikers, or maybe golly. How many of you remember Gomer Pyle? Oh, if you raise your hand, it just aged you. I asked a younger person this morning, have you ever heard of Gomer Pyle? She goes, no, I don't think so. Well, maybe, maybe I have heard of him, yeah. Or expressions like hunky-dory. I mean, did anybody ever say that? I don't know, I suppose they did, but of course no one would say those things today unless they're just really old or they're just not cool. But speaking of cool, cool was an expression used in the 50s and it's still used today. Cool has never gone out. That's really cool. But then you remember another popular word, hot. Oh, that's really hot. So that's cool, that's hot. You know, something could be cool and hot at the same time. Now go figure that out. And yet if something is super cool, super hot, then it can be bad. Wow, that's really bad. You know, a guy sees a, a really cool or hot car or motorcycle and, he's, and he says something like this. He might say, hey, how fast does that bad boy go? You know, he doesn't say, hey, how fast does that good boy go? Right? That's because good is bad and bad is good. But it even goes far. I've even noticed today, if something's really bad, super hot, they may even say, oh, that thing is wicked. It is just, it's just wicked. Now, this is getting really confusing. Good is bad, really good is wicked. Now, it used to be in the old days, if, something, if, if someone was doing something immoral, we'd say, oh, that's bad. If someone was living with a girl or a guy, we'd say, well, that's bad. But if you were married, we'd say, well, that's good. But nowadays, that's all turned upside down. Today, if you think marriage is only between a man and a woman, well, that's bad. That's narrow. Well, that's not right. Surely, surely you can't think that. Everything today is turned around, upside down. Now, I bring all this up because in Isaiah 5.20, God says this about that mentality. He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. You see, God says, I'm telling you what good is, and I'm telling you what bad is. In my word, I'm going to define what good is. And if you say what I say is good is bad, then you're wrong. Now, this applies to our study in the book of Judges because everything was upside down just as it is today. In fact, Judges 17.6 explains why and how this happened. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, everyone was doing their own thing. Everyone had their own truth. Sound familiar? Many today say, well, you know, your truth is not my truth. I live by my value system. You can live by your value system. Unless, of course, your value system encroaches on my value system. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And this led to a cycle in the book of Judges, the nation of Israel sinning against God and God allowing suffering to come upon his people and then the Israelites crying out to God. You know, sin always has its consequences. Where there is sin, there will be suffering. 
We can always expect suffering to follow. Be sure your sin will find you out, the Bible says. The Israelites suffered at the hands of the Philistines, the Moabites, the Canaanites, the Midianites, and the Ammonites. This was punishment for their sin. So question, can God ever use a non-believing nation to overtake a believing nation as a form of discipline? The answer is yes. And that should stand as a warning to us that if we continue to thumb our nose at God and break his laws and continue to go out of our way to remove him from every area of life in this nation, we should never think that we couldn't be overtaken by another nation, even a godless nation. So Israel, in their suffering and misery, would cry out to God, and God would raise up a judge to lead them and to deliver them. And in our text this morning, it is the Ammonites who are called to arms to make war on Israel. And they were camped in Gilead. So the leaders of Gilead decide that whoever would launch an attack against the Ammonites would be their head, would be their leader. And that man was Jephthah. And let's look at his story in chapter 11, beginning now with verse 1. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me, that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land. You stole my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. So after this, Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of Ammon. And here's what Jephthah said to the king. He said, Israel didn't take the land of Moab or the Ammonites. In fact, we didn't even ever enter the land of Moab. In fact, Gilead was never your land in the first place because Israel took the land from the Amorites, not the Ammonites. Now, all this, all these ites gets confusing. You know, there's the Canaanites, the Midianites, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Parasites. I mean, even the king of the Ammonites was confused. But Jephthah goes on in his conversation with the king. And he says, listen, it was our God who gave us the land. 
And since the Lord, the God of Israel, drove out the Amorites, what right do you have to it? We'll keep the land the Lord gave us. You keep the land that your gods give you. And besides, no one had ever contested Israel's ownership of the land since God gave it to us 300 years ago. So why didn't you try to take it then? But the king of Ammon wouldn't listen to Jephthah. And then the Bible says the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. And now he's leading the army to attack the Ammonites. So let's pick up the story now in verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And Israel won a great victory over the Ammonites. Now look at verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And I said to him, and, and she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out from your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies. What a daughter. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. At the end of the two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileite, four days in the year. Did Jephthah really sacrifice his daughter? We don't know. Scholars are divided. Some say he did. Some are very sure that he did. Others argue that he set her apart to remain a virgin for the rest of her life, set her apart for the Lord. I don't know, I have my thoughts, but I'll let the theologians argue that. I'll let them debate it. But I do know this. However Jephthah fulfilled his vow, it sure brought him unspeakable grief. No wonder Jesus warned against making vows. All through the Bible, we're warned about the seriousness of making vows. Jesus warned us about careless words, that we'd have to stand and give an account for every careless word that we speak. But James 5.12 sums it up like this. Now above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Your yes must be yes and your no must be no, so that you won't fall under judgment. You know, in the heat of emotion or in times of trouble, we can all make foolish promises to God. Promises that sound very spiritual at the time, but often produce guilt and frustration when we're forced to fulfill them and we're not able to do so or maybe we're not willing to do so. 
Have you ever made a spiritual deal with God? Have you ever done that? You say, Lord, if, if you'll give me this, I'll give you this. Lord, if, if you'll give me this job, or if you'll give me this promotion, this honor, or you'll heal me, or you'll give me this success, Lord, I'll, I'll go to church every Sunday. Or maybe the girl who says, Lord, if you just give me this guy for my husband, I'll, I'll volunteer in the nursery, and I'll, I'll change dirty diapers for the rest of my life. You know, making deals with God. But making spiritual deals only brings disappointment. You see, God doesn't want promises for the future. He wants our obedience today. When Jephthah should have been celebrating a great victory, his heart was broken because of his foolish vow. But as we read on in chapter 12, we see that Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, wasn't celebrating the great victory either. Instead of joy, there was pettiness and quarreling. The tribe of Ephraim was jealous. Why? Well, they claimed that Jephthah didn't invite them to join in the battle. And you may recall, Ephraim also accused Gideon of the same thing. They're doing the same thing now with Jephthah. But Jephthah said he had invited them, and they didn't come to help. And he became so angry uh, from their insults, they were insulting him, that he called out the troops... And they killed 42,000 men from Ephraim. It indeed was very dark times. But you know, despite his foolishness and revenge, Jephthah is mentioned in Hebrews 11, God's hall of faith. He's mentioned there along with other flawed people like David, like Samson, like Abraham, like Moses, like Gideon. But despite all of his flaws and his sins, Jephthah was a man who had faith in God. Before he went to the battle, he told the king of Ammon, he said, let the Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. He said, let the Lord, the judge, decide. Now Israel had many judges to lead them, but Jephthah recognized the Lord as the people's true judge. Now here was a man... His mom was a prostitute. He was rejected and chased out of town by his brothers. But he was a man who had faith in God. And God used him to defeat the Ammonites. You know, wherever God finds faith, he honors it. As long as that faith is in him, even if it's just a little bit of faith, he honors that faith. How important is faith? Billy Graham once said, faith is loved and honored by God more than any other single thing. I do know this. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We can do all kinds of good things, all kinds of good things for God, but if we don't have faith, we cannot please God. No one has their sins forgiven. No one goes to heaven. No one has peace with God until they have faith In Jesus Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. The Bible says we live by faith. The Apostle Paul said, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You remember when Jesus was crucified? He was hung on a cross between two thieves, two criminals. And one of the criminals confessed his sin. And in an act of faith, he looked to Jesus and he said, Lord, remember me. 
when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus do? He said, I tell you the truth. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, here was a man who had lived a life far from God, who deserved judgment in hell, but by one act of faith in Christ, he was saved. And Jesus took him to paradise. God can't resist a person who truly places his faith in him. But you know, there's another thing God can't resist. He can't resist a humble person who truly repents. And that's what the people of Israel did in our text this morning. So in closing, I want us to focus on the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. And I want us to go back to chapter 10, and we'll see how Israel's deliverance through Jephthah came about. Now, as we've said, it has been a dark time for Israel. And you remember from last week, no sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites were doing evil and worshiping Baal. And after Gideon died, one of his sons, Abimelech, ruled three years in brutal tyranny, murdering 70 of his brothers. And this morning we come to Israel's sixth apostasy. And the Israelites are almost entirely given over to idolatry, serving Baal and all the gods of the nations around them. Their condition now is appalling. They're on the brink of disaster. They've almost gone too far. Now, this, of course, remember, is before God raised up Jephthah. So God sends uh, judgment from the Philistines and the Ammonites who shattered and crushed them. They were oppressed for 18 years. And when the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight them, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. And then God raised up Jephthah. But how did God first respond to the Israelites' cry for help? How did he respond? He refuses to act. For the first time in the book of Judges, God refuses to deliver them. Look at his response to Israel's cry for help. Chapter 10 now, verses 11 through 14. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you? And you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Whoa. This is scary. Think of it. It's as if God is saying, I've had it. You've forsaken me. I won't save you anymore. Go cry out to the gods you've bowed down to. Let them save you. The Bible says in Proverbs 29:1, whoever remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. There comes a time when we can almost go too far, a time when God gives us over to the desires of a hardened, sinful heart. But we have another first-time recorded event in the book of Judges. The people of Israel repent. For the first time, they repent. Oh, now, they've had remorse before. They've been sorrowful before. But remorse and sorrow alone is not repentance. Now, in verse 10, they confess their sin. They say, Lord, we've sinned against you. 
forsaking our God and serving the Baals. Lord, we've, we've forsaken you. Now look at verse 15. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us today. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. Notice their humility. Notice it says they got rid of their foreign gods and served the Lord. They turned from their sin and they turned to God. They changed their ways. They changed their minds about serving God. They made a U-turn. And the Bible says God could bear Israel's misery no longer. And Jephthah was raised up to deliver them once again. Repentance means to change our mind, to turn and walk the other way. We're walking this way, and and we see it's wrong, and we turn and we go the other way. That's what the people of Israel did. And that's what we as Americans need to do. You know, when I read this, I couldn't help but think of that passage that we read together earlier, 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. This is what Israel did. They humbled themselves. They prayed. They confessed their sin. They turned from their wicked ways. And God heard from heaven and healing came for a while. For a while. It was short-lived. Because unfortunately, we'll see next week, chapter 13 begins with these words, and the people of Israel again did what was evil. But at a time when the nation of Israel had reached its lowest, darkest point, at a time when God said, I won't save you anymore, the people repented. They repented. And God delivered them once again. And it's an example to us as a nation, and it's an example to us as individuals. God gave them another chance. Oh, the mercy and the grace and the love of God. Now, repenting of something doesn't mean we'll never, ever commit that sin again. It means that we don't intend to ever commit that sin again. It means that we don't want to ever commit that sin again. But sometimes we do. And if we find that we have to confess the same sin again after we just recently confessed and repented of it, then we must do so, and do so as many times as it takes to win victory over sin. Don't ever think, well, surely God won't forgive me again for the same sin I just confessed to him last week. Don't ever think that. He forgives every time we humbly confess sin before him and truly repent of it. Now look at 2 Chronicles 7, 14 again. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. Here's a promise of God not only to Israel, but to any nation, including ours, if we'll apply it. Notice where God directs his remarks. He doesn't say if Congress will turn from their wicked ways, though they should. He didn't say if Hollywood would turn from their wicked ways, although they ought to also. Or if the president would turn from his wicked ways. No, God doesn't point his finger at the White House. He points his finger at God's house. 
He points his finger at you and me. He says, if my people, who are called by my name, you know, it's so easy for us to say, if only the Republicans would get their act together, or if only the Democrats would change, or if only the mainstream media wasn't so liberal. But God isn't speaking to them. He's speaking to us. God says, my people need to live as they ought to live. My people need to humble themselves and pray. My people need to turn from their evil habits, from their immorality. My people need to put away their idols and their preoccupations and their distractions. And God says if we'll do that, He'll hear from heaven. He'll forgive our sin and heal our land. That's revival. That's what we need. And I believe it's America's only hope. Our only hope for God's protection and prosperity in these dark and turbulent times. What Israel did as a nation, we need to do as a nation. But it starts with you and me. You see, the nation will never turn back to God until its people turn back to God. You know, I have found that when I try to cover my sins, God reveals them. When I try to cover my sin, God uncovers it. Be sure your sins will find you out. Be sure. But when I confess my sin and I renounce them, He covers them by mercy and grace. He covers it my sin with the blood of Christ. So when we confess our sin, he covers it with his blood. Because when Jesus died on the cross, his blood covered all of our sins when we put our faith and trust in him. Romans 4, 7 says, Blessed are those whose sins are covered. Blessed, happy, joyful. That's what comes with confession and repentance. Blessing. Do you have that joy? That joy of knowing that your sins are forgiven? That you're right with God? That if you died today, you'd go to heaven? Do you have that joy? If you don't, you can this morning. Like the Israelites, you can turn from your sin and turn to God. And like that thief on the cross, you can say, Lord, remember me. And Jesus will say to you, I'll take you to paradise. I'll take you to heaven. If you're not sure that your sins are forgiven, if you're not sure that you've ever really received Christ, you've asked him to come into your heart and life, you can do that right now as we pray, as we close in prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, if there's someone here this morning and they can't, they can't say, I know my sins are forgiven, I know I'm going to heaven, but they'd like to know and they'd like to be sure would you help them right now? Would you give them grace to pray this prayer from their heart and say, oh God, I'm a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. Help me to turn from my sin. Jesus, I believe you died for me on the cross. You rose from the dead. I want you to come into my heart, into my life, and make me the person you want me to be. Father, there's perhaps some of us here this morning and we're not as close to you as we should be. Maybe we've drifted. 
Maybe right now we need to rededicate our lives to you. Lord, all of us, show us if there is any wicked way in us. May your Holy Spirit convict us of any sin that would grieve you. Lord, might we have grace to confess it and to turn from it. Would you give us the strength and the power to do that? And oh, Lord, would you heal our land? How we need your healing. For your glory. And in Jesus' name, amen.